Welcome to the Aliagraphic Podcast. I'm Jurgi Urrutia from Kingston Library in Victoria, speaking from Boomburong land of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded and we need a treaty. Uh, today, we have an awesome guest from Melbourne who's now living in Canada. Uh, Lee Lai has created comics for places like Overland and The Lifted Bro and other places. We speak to Lee on the release of Stormfruit, the first graphic novel which is published by Fantagraphics in the US and Bro Books in Australia and New Zealand. How are you going, Lee? I'm good, thanks. Yeah. Uh, how are things in Canada, by the way, with the pandemic and all that? Because that's so far away. They're terrible. Um, we're still on a thousand plus cases a day. We've still got a curfew. Um, everyone still is as locked down as they can be. We're getting a lot of mixed messages from the government here. I'm in Montreal, by the way. So yeah. Quebec has been mostly the epicenter. We take it in turns between Ontario and Quebec to, to be the leading in the worst cases in, in Canada. But yeah. it's reassuring at least to have most of my family and friends in Australia um, doing great now and being relatively free of COVID. So it means that at the very least, I don't have to worry about them, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, um, my family's in Europe, so it's a, it's a little bit similar as well. Very mixed messages and yeah. Uh, yeah, and the cases, they start to go down and then they start to go up again. And yeah, so they never know what's, exactly. uh, what's around the corner. We're very, very lucky and privileged in Australia to um, <laughs> be in the situation where we are, definitely. Yeah. So, um, let, let's get into comics though because that's what we're here to talk about. So um, <laughs> uh, did you read comics as a kid? And, uh, you know, which ones? Oh, so many. Uh, I read the obvious ones that I think I just had my um, my parents, like my dad, my dad read them, like, you know, The Wizard of Id, which I think ran as a comic strip in the, the age for the longest time, but it was mostly the original collected strips in a book that I had. And then Peanuts, um, I don't know, the Archie comics, that kind of thing. And then as I got into my adolescence, I started, a friend in high school was very into alternative comics and he introduced me to the first comics that I read that were more resonant for me. You know, the what now I guess are called graphic novels, um, you know, the stuff that Drawn and Quarterly was publishing in Montreal where I am now. Um, and, you know, the stuff that Panda Graphics was putting out, I read uh, Craig Thompson's Blankets, which you might have read. It's like a big, chunky blue book. Um, yeah, and that really book. changed my, yeah, excellent. It was mostly comics like that when I started becoming a teenager that made me more attentive to the, other than just being a fun thing, you know? Yeah, but Blankets was quite a significant uh, work when it was published. And I, I did notice also that uh, um, libraries uh, really championed it as well. So you mentioned a few, uh, a few there, but what artists or comics have influenced you as a creator? Oh, it's changing all the time. Um, I mean, uh, speaking of Australian creators, uh, Tommy Parrish's work really influenced me. We've been friends for the past 10 years. And so it's been a real treat watching the process change and their you know their career take off and 
their work become what it is now and it's still growing and changing and that's really exciting so we get to kind of share that together um but their first book which is called the lie and how we told it um that really that was really really exciting to watch it come together and it taught me a lot watching them make it because we were sharing a studio at the time um one one of the ones that i you know can't get away without saying is uh um mariko and jillian tamaki's skim which i also read when i was a teenager and that really blew my mind as well uh pat grant's blue as well i read that as a web comic before it became a, a bound book it's a beautiful bound book actually um and that you know gave me a lot of ideas about what can be done in terms of like allegory you know and how you know think things can be kind of serious and very playful at the same time yeah um also sean tan's work i think i guess it's debatable as to whether he counts as a cartoonist or not i guess the arrival to me is very much a comic or a graphic novel but i think yeah. you know a lot of people just call him a children's book illustrator i think he's both um yeah. but yeah i think that's a concise list <laughs> yeah yeah go great stuff definitely yeah yeah uh, and I, i'm with you i think um i think sean tan um you know he kind of works in both worlds mm -hmm. uh, they're both good worlds to work in i reckon definitely i and and yeah i would say the arrival is a graphic novel but then again um, mm -hmm. yeah um or a comic so you were obviously reading all this stuff and um, reading a lot of alternative stuff. Um, but w w was there a point or a catalyst when you decided I want to do comics or was it always there? When I was a kid, I wanted to make children's books, actually. Like I wanted to do illustrations similar to Sean Tan. Um, but I think, and I made, you know, a lot of the you know, draw it on computer paper, staple it together, that kind of thing. I kind of dabbled a lot when I was a kid. Um, and then when I finished high school, I went to art school because I thought that's what you're supposed to do if you want to be an artist. Um, and I went to the VCA, which is much more serious than what I was ever really skilled to do. Some really, I was in, in the class with some really amazing artists who have gone on to do you know, kind of serious art that I was never really able to manage. And they're doing it beautifully because I think it's more in the element for them. But for me, I I, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think I wasted a bit of time there, kind of stumbling around and trying to figure out what what I was doing. Um, I'm sure you got a I lot think, out of it. So I'm sure yeah. that uh, now you'll be able to look at art and, you know, understand it in a different way and analyze it. And that must help you in your practice as well. Absolutely. Like, I think it gave me a lot of language for, for visual work and for, vi and for visual analysis. Um, I also think it gave me a lot of skills in justifying my work, you know, in terms of writing about my work or talking about my work. It's a lot of sitting around in crits, you know, and hearing other people's opinions, which is also a really good skill to build is you know, taking a critique. Um, but I think like after, after uni or around the time I was finishing, I started getting back into drawing. Um, and realizing that I also really liked writing as well. And, you know, comics are a really wonderful combination, combination of those two things. Um, and I went to a, a comics camp that I don't think exists anymore, even though all of the people who ran it are off doing other things, um, called Chugnut. I don't know if you've heard about it before. Yeah, I it's, know. uh, 
I, I wish I knew who actually ran it, but I remember there being all sorts of creators who were um, much more established than I was, who, who was really exciting to be at this camp. It was just like all sitting in a dining hall, you know, 14 hours a day drinking mm-hmm. pots and pots of coffee. And everyone brought their favorite comics to dump onto a pile. So you could just, if you were sick of drawing, you could just read. And I think we spent two or three days there um, just being over-caffeinated and drawing and doing these drawing jams and swapping work and swapping ideas. And I got a lot of tips there on how to, how to, how to cartoon, you know, how to, how to make visual language compelling and interesting and also legible and fluid in the ways that it, I think, needs to be if it's going to tell a long story. I think maybe um, the most similar thing to that that I've heard uh, now is the comic art workshop. Um, exactly. Um, you know, they do that kind of thing. And in fact, they're organizing one this year. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah, it looks and, excellent. And if I was still in Australia, I would love to go. Yeah. And a lot of good work has come out of it. So. Truly. Yeah. yeah. So they're doing something, something special, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's also really cool to have a space for cartoonists to go and just really submerge themselves and be just able to draw in an uninterrupted kind of unbridled way for for hours and hours and hours. Because it's not, I think a lot of cartoonists, because they have to have day jobs and things, just don't get a chance to do that outside of these getaways. And there's similar things in America, like little residencies and things like that, that people seem to seek out because it just gives them that that fire up the ass to kind of get a project into a more concentrated place or started or finished, you know? Right. And, you, you, and you're actually part of some studio collective or something like that, don't you? I'm not, it's not a collective. It's, it's more or less, it's just, it's my partner's um, pottery studio. <laughs> okay. Okay. And they, they run their production out of that space and a couple of other production potters work there too. And it's kind of seen these different iterations every year of what it's supposed to be. Like during COVID, it's not much. It's just kind of a, a production space where we take it in turns being there. Um, but it's been the place I've worked out of. That was also the place where Tommy had their studio for a while. And so it's just been this really nice mix of potters and sculptors. And then there's a little mezzanine where we have some illustrators. Um, a couple of graphic designers have come through, a couple of poets. Like it's a nice, it's a beautiful space. Um, it's like been really, it. really helpful in having a good work practice too. Sounds like it. Uh, here in Melbourne, uh, you may have known of uh, Squish Face Studio. Yeah, yeah. Unfor- unfortunately, it hasn't survived. Uh, um, but oh, at the moment, it's closed, and uh, it seems like they're looking for uh, for a new space. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping yeah. that uh, they get back. Absolutely. Like I think of the joy of that space also was that it was a shop front. So it was it was somewhat open to the public. I guess, you know, I'm not sure whether people were welcome to walk in at any any time. I think they were, but it was in a relatively public spot and people could just wander in and ask questions about comics or pick up a zine and have a look. You know, yeah. It's really special. Definitely, definitely. Because we're a, a, a group of librarians, uh, you know, what's your relationship with libraries? Um, you know, uh, do you use the library? Uh, uh, or was there a time when you used the library a lot? Or I imagine as a student, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I love this question. I use the library all the time. I love libraries and I love librarians. Um, I've been using libraries forever. I'm actually like a pretty bad reader. I'm 
I don't know whether it's officially dyslexia. It costs quite a lot of money to figure that out. But if you give me a slab of text, reading from point A to point Z is really, really difficult for me. I'd kind of jump all over the place and I'm very slow. Um, but I really gobble stories. And so I think I've been trying to figure out ways of doing that my whole childhood into, into my adulthood. And so when I was younger, we would go to the library and take a humongous sack, just the biggest bag we could get, and stuff it to bursting with audiobooks, which at the time were cassette tapes. So they really took up a lot of space. Um, and so it was the kind of, you know, bi-monthly pilgrimage to go and fill up on as many audiobooks and CDs as possible and go home and just listen to them all, which I think also helped me to draw because I, I spend most of my childhood, you know, lying on my stomach on the floor, listening to stories being read to me and drawing while I was to keep my hands busy. Cause I find that doing something with my hands while listening to audio stories is really helpful. Um, and I still do that. I have a membership with the, it's called the Bon Q, the B-A-N-Q in, in Montreal. It's this huge library and it's, it's kind of like it boasts one of the biggest comics collections actually I think in Canada and they're really prideful about that so they, they're really good at taking um, suggestions from the public in terms of what they should be stocking they have a special thing for it and people suggest it all the time because Montreal's full of comics people which is very cool um, that's awesome yeah. so even in the pandemic they have a really cool system where you can you can order it online and then have it get ready to pick up with the relatively COVID safe pickup scheme. And yep. it's been kind of my getting out of the house in winter excuse to go walk over there and pick up the comics that I want to read. <laughs> yeah, when we were in lockdown here, it was the same, you know. Um, yeah. We had um, uh, our home library servers, which is usually very small. We only cater to very few people usually, just the scale yeah. of it and and then also we were doing uh, click and collect also when when they right. let us when the government let us do it um yeah and and that worked really really well for people as well because because yeah but we had people knocking on the door like when are you opening like, well, as soon as the government lets us <laughs> you know and it's a bit totally. safe, and it's uh, yeah it's safe to do so but uh yeah so that that yeah. that's awesome and with all your books i have to say that the best development ever in libraries was when uh, when they started doing um digital audio books uh, that you can download on your phone because yeah carrying those things around even with cds they're so bulky <laughs> yeah it's true yeah i there's a there's a couple of them i have pretty much every login i can possibly get <laughs> i have like the the one connected to the bonk queue and then i also have one borrow box in australia yeah. which connects to the Australian libraries because I just could never have, especially now that I make comics full time, you know, sometimes it's like drawing for 12 hours a day. And so like my hands are occupied, but my brain is usually quite available to listen to store it, which is pretty nice. That's pretty awesome. good way to spend my days, I reckon. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and in, the, uh, in the US and Canada, um, uh, there's a group, uh, for the American Library Association, which is the Graphic Novels Roundtable. Um, and they were pretty much the inspiration for us to start this group. So they're, they're hey. very, very active in, uh, very active in, you know, uh, supporting um, comics uh, for libraries and creators and things like that. And they do a lot of stuff. So look them up. 
Um, I will look them up. Sounds great. Now, um, you've published on Overland and the Lift and mm. Grow, and for example, uh, how did it come about, and what was it like publishing on this literary magazine? Um, I mean, it's been a while now, I think, because the the Brow is no longer really publishing at the moment, but. Uh, both of those things, I'm pretty sure initially it just came because someone I knew, I think Sam Wallman, who's an amazing Australian cartoonist as well, he was working for Overland for a sec. So he was, he invited me to publish with them. And I think I knew a handful of people working at the Brow who were always really supportive um, and always encouraging me to submit things, which was really nice. Um, those were, I think, the first literary journals that were publishing and paying me at all. And this was well, maybe six years ago, um, maybe more now. God, I'm moving faster than I thought. Yeah. Um, but it was helpful because I think at the time I was, I mean, I still am, but even like much more so uh, really unsteady in my own work and really not sure what I was doing. And it was really... Uh, meaningful to be paid for my work for one thing because they both you know are really cool about paying contributors and yep. always had that as kind of the forefront of what's important to the way that they run their business and um, I think it was just really important to get over myself like it was good to have a deadline and just get outside of my my own self-consciousness for a second enough to be like well I gotta honor my deadline <laughs> so I even if I'm pulling my hair out about the quality of this work not being up to what I want it to be I just have to do it I have to send it out mm. um and there's I think for me there was something formative about making my work public it kind of just it pushed me in a different way um and it also welcomed me to feedback um which is really helpful it's it's been a really big part of me figuring out my path since then I guess you know You've made some mini comics and um, you know, published them in magazines. Um, some of them are available online. Could you talk maybe about one of them and tell us where it's available to read and you know? Oh, I mean, I'm afraid not many of them are actually available online these days. Yeah. Like one of them, the one that I can think of that was the most recent was a few years ago and it was called First Year. Uh, it's about a couple of guys it's just about the first year of their relationship. And so it's about them figuring out the difficulties of being intimate with one another, um, having a lot of neurotic conversations about the ways that they do intimacy, I guess. Um, it was more or less just a series of sketches of me building little vignettes to figure out how to write dialogue and how to create uh, a vibe between two characters that are entirely fictional, um, how to you know, take little pieces of what's happening in my own life and insert them into a fictional context. Um, but I've had it all free to read on Tumblr and then Tumblr changed their um, laws in America yeah. around what, <laughs> what's, what should be censored and what should not be censored. Yes. And apparently because there's, I don't know, nipples and butts and things like that in these comics. I, last time I logged into Tumblr, I think 80% of the comic had been censored, which is so interesting because it's really to me, it's really pedestrian. It's really not that sexual. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but so, like, that comic is not, I haven't really had the time or the technological uh, skills to figure out where else to publish it or how, but 
it exists oh. as a little chapbook that was printed a couple of times. So most, I think most of the copies are in America or Canada now circulating in people's bedrooms and things. But generally, <laughs> if every now and then someone's heard of it and emails me asking me for the PDF and I have it. So I just sent it to them yeah. <laughs> as a PDF. And if anybody here listening to this wants to read it, feel free to email me and I can send you the PDF to read. <laughs> right. Uh, well, Tumblr went weird and they Tumblr lost uh, they lost most of the people um, uh, on the platform, definitely. Um, <sighs> that, that was just ridiculous. Uh, and um, with this many comics, actually, what you could do is maybe what Chris Gooch did. You know, he published Bottled and, and, and then before he published Under Earth, he published a collection of his um, short stories. There's an idea. Chris Gooch is shockingly prolific. I have no idea how that guy makes as much as he makes. Very impressive. Um, I probably won't do that because I have the unfortunate habit of being kind of horrified by my history of work. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so I doubt I'm going to be collecting it anytime soon. I'm like, don't hate the idea that people don't know anything I've made previously yeah. before this book. I think Chris Gooch was actually pretty horrified with some of those as well. I mean, he spent a very long time fixing them. Yeah. From, from what I've heard. <laughs> He's braver than me. Heard, I appreciate yeah. that he fixed them. That also takes an enormous amount of patience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so anyway, uh, Stone Fruits, your first graphic novel, uh, and it's excellent book. Um, I had the pleasure of reading it already. Uh, it's been published by Fanta Graphics, which is one of the best publishers in the business, I have to say. So uh, that's pretty amazing. How did this happen? Oh man, I can't remember. Um, how did it happen? Uh, I published the first two chapters once I'd finished them as a little book to sell at TCAF, which is the Toronto Comics Arts Festival. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe someone at Fanographics had read it at that point. I just like given the first two chapters a look um, and so expressed some interest in that point. Um, later down the track, so yeah, I already mentioned that Tommy Parrish is one of my closest friends and Tommy had signed with Fanographics uh, maybe a year or two before then. And so I think they were aware of me as Tommy's friend. <laughs> I mean, I remember one year there was, you know, the, the very cool, like there's definitely an air of celebrity around cartoonists and certain cartoonists and certain publishing houses when you go to TCAF every year in May in Toronto. Um, and so some, like people have their little entourages, you know, there's like the publicist and the publisher and like the hot shit top you know headliner artists and I remember Tommy was going to a, a dinner with the fanographics people and I was not with fanographics and so I was just like oh see you later I guess I'll go you know eat dinner somewhere else and meet you afterwards and they texted me saying that they'd left the dinner um, and they had a bunch of food left over and we should we should just meet up outside because it's warm enough to sit on the ground and eat it somewhere and so we just sat on the street eating from these polystyrene containers of food. And then all of the fanographics people left the restaurant and walked past us. <laughs> so it was all these like cartoonists that I idolize and think that they're yes. super cool walking past us, sitting on the ground, eating their leftovers out of these containers. Um, anyway, all to say, I think uh, that someone at Fana or a couple of people at Fana read the first few chapters and were very interested 
Um, and Jack, who's now my publicist, uh, and Gary, who's the, the publisher there, I think they both really resonated with the story. And so uh, they ended up really championing it through the auction process, um, which would never have happened if I didn't get a really amazing, very tough and formidable and sweet agent. So she facilitated um, some, some auctioning that happened yeah. later in this. Yeah, well, uh, congratulations, because, you know, it's, it, I know it's, it's hard to find a publisher to, you know, and, and an agent yeah. and all that. And, you know, uh, so, yeah, well done. Now, uh, your comics, even before Stone Fruit, they tend to explore relationships in a very honest and raw way. And there are tender moments, but also there are frustrations. Um, Stonefruit seems in some ways a culmination of this path. Um, you know, how did Stonefruit come about? How did oh. you think, well, now I'm going to do this, but I'm, I'm actually going to make a graphic novel with it. It's going to be a longer story. I mean, yeah. I mean, firstly, I think that's a very sweet question um, or a very sweet way of asking the question. Uh, I wanted to make stone fruit the way it was. Yeah, I mean, yes, I've definitely always written about relationships. I think that's something that's interesting to me generally and always has been. Um, and it's something that I think like everyone around me tends to find interesting as well. Got a lot of counselors and therapists and just general um, feelings nerds in my life, mm. which is very, it's a very rich way to, to live if I'm writing about relationships a lot as well. Um, and so I think I wanted, I, end, I started off wanting to write Stone Fruit because I wanted to write something longer. I just was interested in long form at this point. And I, I felt like my drawing skills might be able to cope with a longer project from, from the experience of writing many, many short stories at that point. Um, so I wanted to give that challenge a go. And I think I wanted to specifically explore my own feelings about parenting. Um, and about childcare, because I think I was having a lot of those conversations in my own life. Um, and so I wanted to build some characters. Like it's personal in the sense that the themes and the ideas are very personal to me and very close to my own experiences, but the characters themselves are quite fictional. I think I just yeah. built them in order to enable me to figure out things that were going on in my own life. Um, yeah. And so the story's got these two, these, this queer couple, one of them is of the biological aunt of the six-year-old and she has an intense relationship with her sister. Um, and I think I just wanted to see these characters dealing with their different biological ties to the child as well as to each other and figuring out the ways in which, I don't know, they're, they're navigating intimacy with someone that they've chosen versus someone that they're automatically tied to because they're family um, and then bumming up against these different ideas and definitions of family because that was a conversation that was just happening a lot in my community like with my friends around me and then also in my own life um and it, it was not meant to be as long as it was <laughs> I think it was meant to be 100 pages and then I just found that there was more that I needed to say that would fit than that would fit into 100 pages so it just grew <laughs> from there yeah well the story doesn't seem long so you know it, it, it's the right length Definitely. So, uh, <laughs> in Stanford, you decided actually to go with the four panel layout for most of the mm -hmm. I felt like that kept the book 
intimate and focused. There was something about that layout that really did that to me. And and it was like the characters were um, trapped in square boxes inside a square box, which is the book, you know. Uh, <laughs> so was this deliberate or, uh, you know, am I reading too much into this? I love different interpretations of the four squares. It's so interesting seeing the ways in which people have have kind of analyzed that. I mean, I think there's definitely something about those that that constant layout being somewhat claustrophobic, uh, depending on depending on what your read is. And I think there's aspects of what the characters are experiencing that is definitely somewhat claustrophobic, like just a lot of domestic stagnation in some ways mm -hmm. happening in the story. Um, but mostly, I mean, the main motivation for me wanting to make four boxes is that I don't like a lot of panels on the page for my own work. I just, I find that my work is medium amount of detail, maybe leaning into more detail compared to someone like Chris Ware, for example, whose work is, you know, very graphic, kind of more semi-limited in, yeah. in its amount of focus and detail. Um, and so I think that if there's too many panels on a page, it just gets really messy. It gets, there's, there's a lot of lines and a lot of concentrated, concentrated detail, and it's just too much for my eyeballs. Um, and so I think four panels was probably the maximum I could manage for each page without finding it looked too overworked. Um, and I also just really care about legibility in comics. I find that a lot of comics even though I think that they're very beautiful, I find them hard to read. And maybe maybe it's just me, I mean, my own neurotic preferences for stuff around legibility. But I, I think that part of the reason I wanted four panels is because it reads a bit like a story, like storyboards. Like I wanted it to be somewhat cinematic in terms of you know, the cuts between scenes and the mood. And I just found that four panels was the most straightforward read that could happen. Like if people can pick up this book, and read it from beginning to end in one yeah. sitting. I'm happy. <laughs> That's yeah. a good thing to me. Well, there's uh, there's another Australian creator who uh, who's been using this layout, uh, Mandy Ord. I love Mandy Ord's work, and yeah. truly, her work is extremely legible in that way. I think it like it allows me to sink into the story a lot more when I'm not um, decoding decoding the page. And I think some artists work with that beautifully like I like you know Chris Ware is a good example he uses his pages like diagrams and part of the joy of that is navigating through the page but I think I'm much more interested in just what the characters are doing what they're saying yeah yeah now Stonefruit explores relationships between sisters as well as the relationship between the two main characters um their misunderstandings difference prejudices sometimes push us apart sometimes bring us together. Uh, in some ways, I was thinking as well, I, I think the book is about change and how we accept change as well, in, or don't accept it, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. resist it. Because, yeah, I guess change is constant in life, but at the yeah. same time, uh, it's usually very often resisted, you know? So, um, yeah. can you talk a little bit about that maybe? And, you know, what... Um, what interested you there? Um. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I started writing this book off the tail end of a very tumultuous few years of change in my own life. Uh, I moved I moved continents in that time. Um, I moved in and out of some really 
big important relationships in my life um and you know built a new community over here and yeah I think I I think I had a lot of um strong ideology and just generally strong ideas around how how my life was supposed to look and how I was supposed to be and what my skills were and what my capacity was and all these ideas about myself um when I was a late teen (laughs) you know like I was very full of confidence in who I was and then uh the experience of so much upheaval uh was very humbling and also very formative and I, I think I uh, I mean, I can't say came out of it because it's it's still happening, you know, but like I, I certainly came out of that part of it, realizing that I somehow both knew myself more and had so much less conviction in anything that's going on. That <laughs> like rings a bell big with drug. me, you know. Yeah. That really resonates <laughs> with me as well. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think I wanted to reflect that in the characters. I think I wanted to show them having a lot of strong ideas about what they can create and what they can do together and you know, what their relationships are supposed to look like. Um, and then just be bumping up against, you know, what their bodies are doing and what their hearts are doing and, and, you know, what everyone else is doing, like everyone else being completely outside of your control. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just kind of screaming through the whole process while also accepting it. Cause you know, what else can you do, but accept the changes that are coming towards you and you know work be miserable bub up them for a while or just just exactly <laughs> you know work through yeah. those changes think book- and work on the relationships that matter yeah exactly yeah and there's certainly a lot of relationships that matter in this book yeah yeah that that's right yeah you know what you were saying resonates a lot with me as well so I, I left my hometown um in my early 20s uh you know um, and I left quite suddenly in a very anti kind of way. Yeah, went to the yeah, UK. Yeah. Went to the UK, and I was there for three, four years. Um, rebuild myself and my identity. Um, yeah. And, and you know, new relationships, and you know, I ended up then meeting an Australian and coming to the other side of the world. To leave oh, and sucked and in. Leaving everyone behind, <laughs> you know. So it's heart wrenching. Yeah, yeah. So and and then you know, um, kind of going to my hometown and kind of mending some of the relationships that you know I had. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah huge. So, so yeah, so that that you know, a lot of these things are, I guess, universal. You know, they're really personal, but they're also very universal. You know, in different. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I hope that when people read the book, they can find some point to connect to. Like it's quite a specific story. It's definitely about a lot, like a bunch of depressed, you know, queers living in a way that maybe not everybody can relate to. But hopefully, that doesn't matter <laughs> in terms of what what the what the feelings in the book actually are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So the art in your comics and Stone Fruit is quite distinct. Um, Tell us about your process and when you decided to keep panels in black and white or when to add color or, you know, um, things like that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's similar in some ways to, to the choices around the four squares in the sense that like most of the, in, most of the things that inform that are just my own preferences of legibility. But 
I think I just, I find that having a background in every panel tends to get a bit bogged down. I think it's also my choices of painting. I tend to paint the, the backgrounds in gouache and then I keep the figures in black and white. Um, and it changes the line a lot. It, like I, when I paint in ink, so I paint gouache backgrounds and then I paint the figures in ink. And so the ink lines, because I do them with a brush, it allows them to be a lot smoother than I could achieve with gouache. Um, but I think sometimes then also the gouache backgrounds can be somewhat heavy. They're all blue and gray and so they're pretty dark. Um, and sometimes I don't, I don't find that they actually serve any purpose. Um, and so there's a lot of squares in the, in the book that um, they just have, there's just white backgrounds behind them because the only thing that to me is important for some of those panels is that face is expressing a certain emotion and that the line of dialogue is expressing a certain thing and that that's all that matters and that's all that the reader needs to look at and then they can move on to the next panel. Mm. Um, and I also think it gives the, the eye a chance to breathe because I think when there's too much detail, nothing gets noticed. And so the ones where there is a kind of busy background, I want people to explore the background. You know, if there's a bit of mess in the background, hopefully it's intentional. Yeah. Um, and then it can all just melt away when there's when there's only one thing that that panel is supposed to do because that's a lot of it ends up being a lot of panels. You know, they don't all have to pull the same kind of weight as mm. you as you read through it. Yeah, that, that's cool. Uh, so, um, Stonefruit graphic novel, all done. It's published. Promoting it now. <laughs> What's next? Are you gonna oh. are you gonna start another big one or are you gonna have a break and now I just wanna doodle around and make some mini comics? Um, no, nah, I'm already in the next one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I I definitely like I you know I think the making that book taught me a lot about how to how to manage long form and I you know made plenty of mistakes in the process of it that I think was really helpful in figuring out how to do it again. Um, and so, like, I actually finished Stonefruit over a year ago now. So it's been a while. It's funny doing the promo promotion for it now. Like, I just, you know, just put down the pen. Um, but the reason that Fanographics held off from publishing it for all of 2020 uh, was that it, it, they didn't, they didn't want to publish books like that during 2020 because of the Trump election, <laughs> and you know, all of this American media is going to be focused on on the democracy democrats versus republicans race and so they decided to wait until 2021 um so i've been working quietly on the next one for a while now uh it's called canon um it's probably going to be about the same length maybe probably a bit longer and mm -hmm. uh it's about a couple of friends who have been friends for a very long time and have reached a sort of stale point in their friendship where they're quite sure that they love each other, but they're not really sure if they like each other anymore. Yeah. Um, and so it's about them trying to figure out how to continue or not continue being friends. And it's also about um, anger. And one of them in particular, the one who's called Canon, actually, she's trying to negotiate and navigate the fact that she's quite angry about a lot of things in her life, but doesn't want to be. <laughs> and so it's, mm -hmm kind of finding its own way to express itself outside of her will. Excellent. 
so uh, that that's awesome to hear. You know, you 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 didn't get frightened by all the all the work that a graphic novel needs because it's, it's a lot of work to make a graphic novel. You know? It's a lot of work. You gotta you gotta like drawing a lot and you gotta like writing a lot. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I like both of those things, so I think I think I picked the right thing. Excellent, uh, excellent. Well, we'll we look forward to um, hearing um, more about it, and uh, you know, um, keep us posted. Or hopefully, yeah. Jack will keep us posted as well. Uh, we'll keep an eye out for it. Um, so, uh, just wrapping up. At the end, we usually invite our guests to tell us about three comics or graphic novels that they've read recently, or or three that they would like to recommend, or three that you know, relate to stone fruit or whatever way you want to take it. Sure. Yeah, I can do that. I'm glad that you asked me this in advance because I, I like, I'm really bad at remembering all the good ones on the spot. Um, and so I got, I got a good 12 hours on what to think about this, which is yeah. great. So the list I have is I just finished one called Black Hole Heart. It's by Kathy G. Johnson. Uh, it's a short comic. You can, you can read it online for three, free if you type in her name on Google and it is very beautiful. I love all of Kathy G. Johnson's work. It's it's very intimate and strange. It's it's kind of sinister. Um, the first one of Kathy's that I read was a, a short comic called Dear Amanda. Um, and it's just got a lot of really great tense conversations. Like I found my shoulders rising up to my ears as I read it, but in a good way. Mm -hmm. um, and her 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 pencil kind of rough pencil work is really, really beautiful to look at. Uh, the second one is another one that I just finished reading as well. I got it out from the library here and then got it again because I just wanted to look at the artwork for a second time. Uh, it's called The Hard Tomorrow by Eleanor Davis. Uh, I think she's also been published by Fanographics and by Drawn and Quarterly. She's pretty prolific and really beloved over here. Um, it's a book about a couple preparing to have their first baby and trying to reckon with the fact that the world's this horrible, divisive, political turmoil wasteland that it is. Um, and so I guess it's just about a, you know, a jumble of difficult, strange relationships between activists while she's preparing for this baby to come out of her body. Um, and then the third one is, I haven't read it, but I really want to read it. And I think that's a good enough reason to, to mention it is The Grot by by um, Pat Grant. Mm -hmm. um, we had a chat about it just the other day and it's been really cool seeing some of the process leading up to that book being completed. And I wanna get my hands on a copy as soon as possible. Yes, well, well worth it. Um, I, yeah. I got a copy directly from Pat. Um, so yeah, yeah, um, you're in for a treat, definitely. I reckon. <laughs> yes, all right. Um, Thank you, Lee. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and um, yeah, thank, thank you for you. your time. And uh, so people listening, please uh, get some fruit and, uh, and uh, you know, give it some love. And uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye out on you. So take care and keep working on Canon. Thank you. <laughs> I'll keep doing the thing. Thanks for chat today. Thanks for listening to Alia Graphic Podcast. Hit the subscribe button on our YouTube page and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Alia Graphic, 
email us at aliagraphicinfo at gmail.com and check our blog, aliagraphic.blogspot.com for updates, monthly roundups of news and new release titles.